0: I know you're a wonderful church because when I first walked in here this morning, one of the very first conversations I had was about baseball. and There's just some godly people here, and so I'm thankful for that. The next time you watch a game or you get to go to a game, whether it's high school, whether it's college, or whether it's a professional game, whatever it may be, I want you to listen for something because what you'll notice is that every time a new hitter comes to the plate – or a new pitcher comes into the game, you'll hear a song. That song is not by accident. That song was chosen by that particular player as what we know in the baseball world as their walk-up song. And when I was playing at Murray State years ago, we were the first group to be able to do this. We finally developed the technology in America that we could put something like that together and play a song when you walk to the plate. And it was incredible, let me just tell you. So I would be in the on-deck circle... Over here next to the first base dugout, getting ready, kind of swinging the bat a little bit, helmet on. The other guy does what he does, and it's my turn. And the lights dim, the fireworks go off. <laughs> and Not really, but it, yeah, it's in my mind that was what was happening. I mean, it was great. And then there comes my song. And you know what you do for your walk-up song is you... you you make sure that that it gets played. You don't walk very fast to the plate, so I mean, you just kind of stroll. The umpire's like, "Come!" On. I'm like, "No, my song's playing." You don't understand. So you you finally get to the batter's box, and and then you stand there, and then you step out so to play a little bit more, and and everybody's cheering. I mean, there's thousands of people going wild, and, and <laughs> again, I mean, it's all it's in my mind, but but you, but you you got to pick your walk up song, and so it was incredible, and. and You'd hear that song every time you come to the plate, or if you come into the game as a pitcher, they'd play that song for you. And I remember having to pick which song is going to be mine. I I always viewed it as, what if I could summarize my life, basically, in one song, what's it going to be? I mean, this is what people are going to hear when they see me sort of being the center of attention, and there I enter the game. What would they think? What, what would my walk-up song be about? And I can tell you this, that that really does become an identifier. I have had the privilege this year of, of helping to coach a little bit at Murray State, and I've been there for home games and been able to coach first base, and I can tell you without looking who's coming to the plate simply by their song. It's played every time, and some guys will get four at-bats a game, some guys will get three, sometimes five at-bats, and that song will be played. I could tell you, I could turn around and face the outfield and tell you who's coming to the plate based upon their song. And it's interesting because maybe I'm wrong, but I typically look and say, well, that guy chose that song for a reason. It must say something about him or what he thinks or what he believes, whatever. If you were to have to pick your own walk-up song this morning, the theme song about you and your life, who would it be about? What would it be? Which song right now would you pick? If I were to tell you leaving here, you're going to have to turn in, and next week we're going to play. When you walk through those doors, the lights will dim. And we're going to play your song, and you take your seat as you're introduced. That's somebody who goes to Elm Grove Baptist Church. If you, if you had to pick, which song would it be? Who is your walk-up song about? And I really think that question hits very close to the point that Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 3. If you got a Bible handy, and somehow you can get to the Scripture. There's a little handout in your bulletin. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can look there. And I would encourage you... Uh, Don't just rely on what's going to be on the screen this morning, because I'm going to go more verse by verse than taking a whole look at this, just so you know. So follow along somehow. You'll see on the back of that little outline, there's a code that you can scan that will take you to the Scripture and some online notes. You can actually take your own notes there and then email that to yourself if you'd like to hang on to those. But let me catch you up to speed real quick. Philippians chapter 3 is the midpoint of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he founded in a place called Philippi, an old Roman town in Eastern Europe that he was passing through on a journey to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he stopped there because it was an important town, and he found a few folks, a handful of people who were Jews. And he preached the gospel to them. They were saved. And they started a church. That was about ten years before Paul wrote this letter. And so in the ten years that had passed, Paul had moved on to other places, and he'd faced some really difficult times. And in fact, at the time when he wrote this letter, he was on house arrest. He wasn't truly free. He was facing a trial that may well end in the ending of his life. The Philippians had heard about what, what he was going through, and they were concerned, actually, he's their founding pastor. And so they had sent him some gifts. They would sent him some money. And they'd ask how he's doing. And so in response to that, Paul wrote the letter that we know as the letter to the Philippians. And what he's telling them is, hey, thank you, first of all, thank you for the letter, or for the money, rather. And I want you to know how I'm doing. I'm okay. And as a good pastor should, he's teaching them along the way. Let me tell you some things about life and about life with Jesus and and some stuff I want you to make sure that you know and You know, it's almost as if Paul wrote to them saying, this may be the last communication we have, and I just want to kind of get it out there. Here you go. Make sure you understand this. A short letter, but very to the point. And so that's sort of where we pick it up. The first half of the letter is is really about what Paul said in chapter 1, how to live a life worthy of the gospel. The second half of the letter is really going to be some challenges and encouragements that he takes from his own life and puts on the Philippians, sort of a here's what I've learned kind of thing. Look at verse 1 in chapter 3. Finally. Now, pause there for just a second. You know what it means when a pastor says finally or in conclusion? Absolutely nothing. It means nothing at all. It just means I'm moving forward. And I may get done at some point. And I may not. I may say in conclusion about four or five times. That's why I don't ever tell you in conclusion because I, I don't want to annoy you and I figure you might be. Finally, though, in this context, what he's saying here. He he uses a word that they would have understood. Greek readers would have understood. All he's saying is in addition. It's just sort of a pause, and we're moving on to something slightly different from what we've been talking about. So we're turning the page, he says, going in a slightly different direction. But he says, look, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a protection for you. He's telling them a reminder of something he's told them before. Rejoice in the Lord. His whole letter really is a theme of joy. Paul's on house arrest. He has nothing really to be joyful about from the outside looking in, and yet Jesus has so filled his life, and Paul is so in love with the Lord that he says, Rejoice, I'm joyful. And he just wants them to remember that again. And he says, I'm writing you some things that I've told you before, but it's no trouble for me. I don't know if you ever get tired of telling people the same thing over and over again. I've got four children, which means that we say the same things a lot. Over and over and over. I I coach a baseball team of eight and nine-year-old little boys. Same things, over and over and over. And then, you know, I even get to help out with the university team. And a lot of it is just the same things, over and over. we just like that, aren't we? Sometimes it takes us a while to get it. Maybe you get tired of that. Or maybe for you, you say, you know, I know you told me before, but just tell me again because I didn't get it. Paul says, you know what, this is not annoying for me. I want you to know this stuff. It's not a bother for me to have to tell you this again. And he says it's to your benefit. It's helpful to you. Sometimes, don't we just need to be reminded about the truth? Paul says, "I, I want you to rejoice. And I'm going to tell you some things that I've already told you. But I want to remind you again, pay attention, he says. And then he gives really sort of a, a, a very bold verse. Verse 2, watch out. He says, be on guard, be on the alert. Keep your eyes open, stay awake, watch out. For what he calls, quote, dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who who mutilate the flesh. Now that, I don't know about you, but you read that and and I'm not Jewish and I didn't live in the first century. And I'm sort of like, what in the world is he talking about? That just sounds gross. What is he saying? Well, if you understand the context of what he's talking about, he, he's saying be on guard against who he would call, in quotes, dogs. He's talking about people here. Now, you think dog, and you probably think the nice little lap dog who's at home, and you pet me, yaps for some food. And that Paul's not talking about that kind of dog. Paul's talking about a wild dog like a coyote that's a scavenger that just makes a lot of noise at night. Uh, that, that simply is, is, a, is somebody who comes and uh, eat the roadkill and, and the garbage. That's who he's, who he's talking about. He's comparing people to those kinds of dogs. And then he says, watch out not only for them, but they're also evil workers. There are also those who mutilate the flesh. Some folks would say, well, Paul's talking about three different groups of people. Really, what he's talking about is one group. He's talking about those who he considers to be the ultimate and unclean. If you know anything about Jewish history, you know there's clean and unclean. To be unclean was really not good at all. He says dogs, those coyote-like people, are unclean. They're just feasting on the simple-minded and those who don't get it. He says they're also evil workers. They're in it for themselves, using people to make themselves feel better and elevate themselves. And they're also... Simply mutilating the flesh. Now, if you know about Jewish history, you know that circumcision was a big deal. Paul says these folks, yes, they're circumcising, but all they're doing is just mutilating the flesh. It means nothing to them. Paul's talking about one group of people. He's talking about the religious leaders in Judaism who are simply in it for themselves and for those who led others astray. Leading them in the wrong direction by simply teaching that religious rituals and ceremonies is what God really, really wants and that you could ultimately do enough good to get yourself to God. He says, watch out for that kind of mentality. Watch out for those people. Because that teaching, Paul knew, and the Philippians knew, he's reminding them, goes against everything that Jesus stood for. You know, the prevailing mindset in our world today, and sadly, even among many religious people, is no different from what Paul references here in chapter 3, verse 2. It's really not. The prevailing mindset today... Is, well, just be good. Be nice. Be moral according to some standard. And, you know, do some nice, helpful things for your neighbors. And just generally be a good person. You know what? In the end, that's going to outweigh the bad that you do. I mean, you know, I had a conversation with a friend the other day, and it really kind of broke my heart because. I understood that this this is just the the prevailing way that people think. I was talking with him, and, and he he was in a situation with a friend of his, and he wasn't sure what to do. They were having some kind of conflict, and it was just he, he was concerned that he had done something wrong. He just he said, "Look, can you help me? Did I do anything wrong? Here? Do, what do I need to apologize for? Something? I want to make this right. I don't like that things are messed up here. You've you've dealt with that." If somebody's mad at you and you think, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? And he was calling me to say, can you help me work through this? I said, well, yeah, that's fine. And, and by his own admission, he said, you know, I, I recognize I'm not, I'm not perfect. Um, so, you know, there may have been something that I, that I did that was wrong. And He said, you know what, I, I say some things that sometimes, you know, are not real helpful and, and, I, and do things that I know are not right. He said, but, you know, I, generally I consider myself a pretty good person. I mean, I do, I do a lot of good things, and I try to, try to help folks, and I try to do what, what is right. He said, you know, I, I, and the good really does just outweigh the bad. He wasn't trying to justify anything he had done, but what he said there spoke volumes to me about the way that most people think. And in this case, what Paul is talking about, the way that many what we would call religious people think. That if we just do enough good stuff, if we just are nice enough to people, if I'm just moral enough, well, it has got to outweigh the bad stuff. Yeah, I've done some things that are wrong, but I mean, doesn't that cover it? We use our good stuff, the the nice things we do, the, the good decisions we make to try to cover and trump the things that we know are wrong and sinful. Paul says, you've got to watch out for that kind of mentality. Paul compares it to dogs and evil workers and people who are simply mutilating the flesh. You understand how serious this is to Paul. It is blasphemy in his mind to consider that the good stuff we do will outweigh the bad stuff and somehow we're good with God. It's blasphemy. He has no time for it. It's wrong and it's evil. He hates it and he wants the Philippians to stay away from that mentality. And I'll tell you, church, the same thing. I hope that as your pastor, I can tell you, stay away from that mentality. Watch out for it. There are none of us, as Paul is going to show us, there are none of us who can be good enough to get to God and have our good stuff cover up and trump our bad stuff. We can't. The good does not outweigh the bad. As much as I wish I could tell you otherwise, I wish I could say, just just be a good person, and that's good enough. The good doesn't outweigh the bad, because one bad, one sin, is enough for God to cast us into hell for all eternity. That's it, because He's perfect. So it's not the good that outweighs the bad. Paul says, be aware of that. Watch out for that kind of mentality. And he says, here's why that's not right. Here's why you should. Look at verse 3. He talks about them mutilating the flesh, circumcision, just going through the motions of religion. He says, for we, talking about believers in Jesus, we are the circumcision. Now, l- let me pause there for a second, because that kind of, it's weird. That's a different way for us to think. But you have to understand what Paul's, what Paul's mentality was, what his theology was, was that true circumcision is not something that is done to the body, but is something that is done to the heart. To the inner person, that, that what's cut away is not a piece of skin, but what's cut away is the old nature, and the sin in your heart is cut away. That's what he says. We're the circumcision. We're the ones who have truly been changed, the believers in Jesus. And here's what he says here's how to sum up the essence of Christianity. He says, The ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Paul says, We serve, we worship, we worship by the Spirit of God, not by rituals. Last week at, at, on Easter Sunday, we had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, communion as you may know it. You know, my, my fear with that always is that it will just be a ritual for us. That, that by, by doing that, we'll say, well, I, I guess I'm good with God now. I've done this. I've participated. You know, sometimes I struggle even at the end of services. And I'll, I'll ask some folks to come down front this morning. I'll just tell you up front i give you the opportunity. But, but I struggle with that because I don't want it to be, well, I, I went down front at church, I guess I'm good with God now. I, I want you to feel, feel free and, and feel open to be able to respond to God however that you need to. But I want you to understand that truly... What we need is a circumcision of the heart. We need to worship God through His Spirit, not through simple ritual and just trying to jump through all the hoops. Paul says we serve, we worship by the Spirit. We boast in Christ Jesus, not in ourselves. We count on who He is and what He's done because we know compared to Him who we are and what we've done. And then he says we put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh just meaning our our humanity, what we can do what we can accomplish. I'm not putting my confidence in that, he says. I'm no longer counting on that to score points with God. I'm trusting only in Jesus, he says. I'm done with trying to get to God on my own. I'm just going through Jesus alone. And he says in verse 4, I don't put confidence in flesh, but although I once had confidence in, in the flesh paul 's not jealous here. just make note of this Paul is not jealous of the people who are more religious than him he he 's not sort of a religious bench warmer, and the religious all stars make him mad because they get all the attention and they do everything right and he 's not mad at them because of that. He's not jealous of them because they're more religious than him. In fact, what he's going to say, I had, look at verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, to consider yourself a good religious person, I have more. <laughs> Paul says, you don't get it. My walk-up song is incredible. I mean, when they introduce me, there really are fireworks and lights dim and the whole deal. Paul says, when I walk into the room, I am the man. I am the best Jewish person you have ever seen in your life. And look what he says about it. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Exactly what should have happened in his life, he says, here's what what happened. His parents did what was right. Of the nation of Israel, he's born into the covenant. He didn't come from the outside in. Of the tribe of Benjamin, you realize in the Old Testament, there are ten of the tribes that rebelled against the true king. Benjamin was one of those that didn't. Paul says, look, I'm from that tribe. A Hebrew born of Hebrews. His parents... Were solid Jewish people. So by birth, Paul says, I had it all together. And also by achievement regarding the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. The law talking about the law of Moses given in the old Testament. You know, the Pharisees for what we probably think most, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard a sermon or two on the Pharisees and how rotten and awful and evil and nasty they were. They were the people who tried the hardest to please God. I want you to know that. They they took the scripture more seriously than anybody else. Now, they got off course, obviously, and Jesus had some pretty strong confrontations with them because they added their own stuff and they put more on the people than God actually required of them. They, They made up a bunch of laws themselves. But you realize they were as sincere of religious people as you could imagine. They were sincere about what they were trying to do. Paul says, regarding the law, I was, I was sincere. And he goes on to say, regarding zeal, I mean, my passionate nature about the Jewish faith, he says, I persecuted the church. These folks are coming and claim that the Jewish system is, is, is gone and fulfilled in Jesus. He says, no, 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 no. I defended Judaism by persecuting these new believers. And he says, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, regarding jumping through all the hoops and following all the the rules and all that stuff, he said, I was blameless. I did it all. Paul says that by birth and by achievement, I was a big deal. I was incredible. I mean, there's nobody any better than me, he says. I did it all right. You know, it's sort of like a person today who's born in America, raised in church and still in church. By birth, born into what we might have historically called a Christian nation. Born in the right place. I mean, if you're going to be a Christian in the last hundred years, America's the place to be born. Parents who raised you in church... I was raised in church all my life. So your parents did some things for you that were good. And you know what? I'm st- I'm still in church by my own achievement. I, I'm I'm still trying to do what's right. You see, Paul's saying that by birth I was born into the nation of Israel, and by achievement I did everything that they asked me to do. And you may think, well, I, you know, I was born in America, I mean, we're a Christian nation. For crying out loud, I grew up in church. I mean, I've, I never did anything that bad. You know, I I got some gold stars, I memorized some verses. I'm. Uh, We may think we've got it all covered. And we're a lot like Paul because by birth and by achievement, we figure we've done pretty well. Paul goes on to say, though, verse 7, the key word, of course, in the whole passage, but. There's the transition. Because you see, between verse 6 and verse 7, Paul recollects his conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus interrupted his life and saved him, and turned him around and changed him forever. Paul says, all those things before, look at verse 7, everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ, all of his religious sincerity, all of the stuff that he did, all of the good things that he tried to accomplish, he says, now all of those assets I now view simply as liabilities. He said, I had it all wrong. I was measuring myself against the wrong standard. I'm looking at how can I outpace everybody else in religious achievement, and I failed to understand that truly in my heart, I'm a sinful person, and my comparison is not to everybody else, but to Jesus himself. And he says, so all these things I had stacked up, all this stuff I piled up in my favor, all these things I'm standing on, climbing up, seeing how high I can get, trying to reach God, he says, now I'm throwing all that away. I don't know what that says to you this morning. I don't know how many things you've stood on to try to get yourself to God and to feel good about who you are. And to try to make you think that maybe God feels good about who you are. I don't know what you're standing on this morning, but Paul says, Look, all that stuff, I've cut it out from under my feet and I've thrown it away. I don't want anything to do with that anymore. Why? Verse 7, he begins it. He says, I've considered it to be a loss because of Christ. Once he met Jesus, everything changed. That was a big deal Till I met Jesus. And because of what he has done, now what I can do doesn't matter. More than that, he says, verse 8, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not only because of what Jesus has done, but I, I want to know him, so I've got to get all this other junk out of my life, stop counting and standing on that, and I've just got to simply pursue knowing Jesus. Because of him, he says, verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all things. What all things is he talking about? All that stuff there that he lists. All of his religious achievement. All of his status with the Hebrew people. All of that stuff. He says, I consider all of it a loss. I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth. Now that's a fancy way of saying it's a big pile of garbage. In other words, the words that are actually used, it's a pile of manure. Think about it. Steaming, stinking pile of manure. did think you are going to hear that in church today. But that's what Paul says. He said, all that stuff that I tried so hard to accomplish, and so hard to do, and, and I thought was so great about me, and all my religious stuff that I could achieve, there it is. It smells bad. It's... That's all it's useful for. Just throw it out. It can't help me anymore. In fact, he says it's all just a detriment. It's just holding me back. He says, so, look at verse 8, so that I may, what, gain Christ. I just want Him. And then he says, verse 9, and be found in Him. I want to be His. I want, I want to, to have Him and I want to be His. And then he says, not having a righteousness of my own from the law... You know, when you peel back the layers, if you have to admit, which we all do, if you have to admit, yeah, and I've done some things that aren't right, you know what that makes you? A sinner. I don't know. Don't be talking about that stuff. It does. It makes me a sinner too. You know why? Because I've done some things that aren't right. Have I done some good things? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. But have I done some things that are unrighteous? Yeah, you know what that makes me through and through? Unrighteous. He says, I I can keep trying through all these rules and all these laws that the Pharisees have written to try to somehow clean myself up, but he says, I'm not going for that kind of righteousness anymore. Why? Because it leaves me short of God. It doesn't make me perfect. And what he does is he looks on Jesus Christ and he says, there's only been one person who ever lived who was pure and righteous and sinless and holy through and through. And if I want righteousness, he says, look, not having a righteousness of my own, but one that is through faith in Christ, I want to change places with him. I I, I don't want to try on my own account to empty myself of unrighteousness and pile up a bunch of good stuff. I just want what Jesus is offering, which he says, I'll clear the account and give you something brand new. That's what I want, Paul says. One that's through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. I want the righteousness of Jesus. I can't do it on my own. You understand that's the biggest stumbling block to coming to faith in Jesus Christ, is admitting that you cannot save yourself. You cannot get to God on your own. It's the necessary and most difficult step. And I firmly believe that's why we don't see more revival in our world today, simply because, especially here in America, we've got a bunch of self-made people who think we're so great and we can do it all. I don't need anybody else. Guess what? News flash, you need Jesus. You may not like that. You may disagree. But take up your case with God. He's the one who set up the system. You can't do it on your own. Paul says, I don't want that righteousness that leaves me short of God. I don't want to sort of, kind of, maybe get there. I want to get there. I want to gain Christ, be found in Him. He goes on to say, "My goal now that I've met Jesus is to know Him." Some of you are great at setting goals. I'm sure you got a five, ten, twenty-year plan. Here's what I'm going to accomplish. This is what I want to see. And you know, let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. I think you. I think it's it's wise to plan ahead. And say, Lord, here's some stuff I'd like to accomplish. I wonder on that five year plan, is there anything about knowing Jesus more? Is there? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just, let's look at what the guy who had it all said. Now, here's all I want. Is there anything on there to say, you know what, in the next five years, I really just want to know the Lord more? I may accomplish lots of stuff. I may make more money. I may gain all this stuff, but all I really want to do is know Jesus more. Is it on there? Paul says, my goal, not one of my goals, my goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection. Paul says, that power that brought Jesus to life, that's the power that has brought me to life out of my sin, and I want that power every day. You realize you need more than just a Sunday morning experience. You do. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you come back each week. But you need more. You need the power of the resurrection in your life every single day. And Jesus offers it freely. You don't have to get it just at church. He offers it freely through His Holy Spirit, who comes to take up residence in your life when you place your faith in Him. Paul says, I want that power, and I want the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. I want to be like Him. Paul knew that he might well die for the sake of the gospel. That was reality to him. It may not be reality to us that we'll be killed for our faith, but all of us must live a crucified life. That we have died to ourselves. Jesus said it himself, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, he said. Living a crucified life. Assuming, he says, verse 11, that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now, Paul's not confused about whether or not he's going to heaven. He just doesn't know when it's going to happen. He's not sure, Will, will will he immediately be taken when Jesus comes back and he's still alive? Or will one day his body rise to meet his soul at the rapture? Which one is it going to be? Paul says, I don't know, but I just want to live with him forever. You understand how Paul changed? Before, all he wanted to do was be a great Jewish religious leader. And then he looks at all that he can get from coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and he says, all that other junk is out the window. So Paul says, there's all this. Or there's being a good religious dude. Which one am I going to choose? The same question is for us today. It's all this stuff... Where it's just being good and nice, counting on ourselves to get us to God. Paul says, now that I've met Jesus, nothing else is worth living for. My walk-up song is different, he says. No more flashing lights. No more fireworks about me. If Paul were to walk into this room right now, all he'd want is a song playing about Jesus. His walk-up song is changed. His life was different. <coughs> If you evaluate the walk-up song of your life right now, which one is it? Is it about you? What you've done? The things that you're good at? All you can accomplish? Or is it truly about the Lord? The truth this morning that's easily pulled from what Paul's talking about is that somebody is going to be the big deal... In your life. Somebody. I mean, it's un, it's unavoidable. And I'm not talking about a big deal. I'm talking about the big deal. Somebody is. And, and the choices to be made today, is it going to be you or is it going to be Jesus? Because really those are the only two choices. He said, no, no, my kids are. No, no, that's, that's not Jesus, is it? Then my work is. What, I, what, what I'm trying to accomplish is the big deal. No, no, it's Jesus or it's us. There's no real in-between. And it's a choice that we we make every day. Let me tell you this. Letting Jesus be the big deal of your life isn't about perfect attendance at church. So don't think this is me trying to get you just to be here more. It's not about giving more during the offering. It's not about just memorizing more Scripture verses or jumping through more religious hoops. It's really not. It's about what Paul said in verse 3, that Jesus so dominates your life that you worship Him truly worship Him. Not just Sunday mornings, but truly worship Him. That you talk about Him. And that you stop counting on what you have by birth and achievement to score points with God. That's what it means when Jesus is the big deal of your life. And so, this week, this is a point of application. So, what in the world do I do with this? I just want you to pray a prayer. A simple prayer, less of me, more of you. Less of me, More of you. Lord Jesus, less of me, less of my good stuff, less of my bad stuff, less of my own efforts, less of, of all that I can do. And more of you. More knowledge of you, more of your righteousness, more of your power in my life, more conformity to who you are. For some this morning, let me tell you this. Some simply need, for the very first time, to humble yourself before your God, your Creator, and say, I am a sinner, I need forgiveness, my only hope is Jesus Christ, and I today will place my faith in Him for the very first time. Lord, change me. You take over my life. Some need to start there. Don't don't jump past that, (laughs) because if you don't get there, then you've gotten nowhere. You need to start by surrendering your full self to Jesus Christ through faith in Him. And others, you may say, you know, I've already done that and I recognize that prayer. Less of me, more of you. What I'd like to do to to close our our time and sort of offer an invitation for you to respond this morning is simple. I'm going to kneel here because I'll be honest with you, I need to pray that prayer too. And maybe this morning the Lord has just stirred your heart and you say, you know, I I need to respond in some way. I don't want to leave here today without doing business with the Lord. I want you to feel free to join me here in just a moment. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to talk or tell your story or anything. I just want to offer that. I'll kneel here. Let's join together. Here's what we'll do. Danny and Randy are going to lead us through the first verse and chorus of without him. And that's when we'll come to kneel. And then I'll pray for us. Just simple prayer. As we join our hearts to say, less of me, more of you. And then after the prayer, as we're heading back to... Our seats. We'll sing the second verse in chorus. And then we'll, we'll close soon after that. But this morning, don't, don't leave without responding to what God has said to you. Let me pray for us. Then I'll ask you to stand. I'll kneel here. If God is calling you to respond this morning, please do so. Submit to Him as that, that first verse and chorus are being sung. Lord, Please help us this morning with our response. We may be scared or nervous or timid or whatever, but God help us. We want less of us and more of you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.